Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this awesome day. Jesus, you are glorious and you are holy and we exalt you. Father, we praise you that even when we walk out on waters and we're afraid, we see the waves rise, you are always present. You sustain us, you uphold us. You have chosen us to be your sons and daughters. And it's not because of what we do, it's because of who you are. Father, speak to us through your word. May my words be your words and yours alone. Holy Spirit, bring encouragement and strength and comfort and healing and conviction. Father, glorify the name of Jesus. And we ask all these things in his precious name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You all may be seated. For those who are here for the first time, welcome to the church at Woodbine. My name is Doug Jones. I'm the campus and teaching pastor. Those online, welcome. We are glad you've joined us. As you can see, we have the Lord's Supper today. And so I'm going to have to slap this thing like 95 RPMs and preach really, really, really quick. And also, unfortunately, this whole little passage here, even though it's like five verses, you could preach about 30 sermons in this tiny little passage. There's so much here that we will unpack, but we're going to go quick. So hang on. So if you take notes, you're just going to write really quick and probably shake your hand out. But before we do that, a quick review. We're in our DXD vision series. And last, the past two weeks, we've talked about some of our five Gs. We have five Gs here. Life is better in 5G. Gospel conversations, which is what we looked at the past two weeks. But then there's also groups and going, giving, and then gathering. So the past two weeks, we've looked at gospel conversations. We talked about what is the gospel? And this is the gospel. That Christ died on the cross for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. He was dead. Yet three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering both sin and death, crushing Satan's head. And because of that, everyone who believes and puts their faith in Jesus have new life, eternal life, are forgiven and are adopted as his sons and daughters. That is the gospel. From that, everything else flows out in our lives. And we've looked at the Bible, the basic instructions before leaving earth, the B-I-B-L-E. Today, we're going to look at another G of our five Gs, gathering. And we're going to look right here, gathering one body. And right here in Colossians, there's going to be three things we're going to look at. Our identity, our lifestyle, and our motives. But before that, I got a story to share with you. Growing up, Every once in a while, my older brother and I, with some friends, we had to go down to Fort Walton Beach. We couldn't quite afford Destin. And back in the early 90s, there's all those other beaches didn't exist. But we had to go down to that beach in that fine sand, and the waves would just barely come up to your shin. I mean, nothing. Moved to Mexico. Christy and I got married. And the closest beach was like a 12-hour drive through these crazy mountains. You'd get car sick. Oh, just twists and turns. But we go to Puerto Vallarta. That's the Pacific. And those waves there in the Pacific, compared to the Gulf, are ginormous. And, you know, I've got one of those bodies where I can body surf, you know, just kind of on the wider side. I love the ocean. Now, when I was six years old, I begged my older, one of my older cousins, who looked like Farrah Fawcett, and she had a fancy little red sports car. We begged her, my older brother and I, to go watch Jaws when I was six. And ever since then, I'm traumatized getting in the ocean. I force myself to get in the ocean, but I'm scared to death I'm going to get beaten by a great white shark. That's just me, but I'll get in it. And I love trying to ride the waves. And I found some really old pictures of me, and I got this first one right here if it works. So now that's me standing before that wave right there. 
This is in the I used to surf and everything. If you believe that, I got about 10,000 acres of swamp land in Arizona for sale too. But, you know, I was looking at this and we sang earlier, you know, oceans. And I, just, I love how the Holy Spirit works. Just how he coordinates stuff. You know, the next one, the next one is actually a picture of me. And, uh, you know, but I've got swampland in New Mexico for sale, too. You know, and then there's this third wave, too, and just the size of these waves. <laughs> and the reason I bring this up is because we're actually going to look at something in this passage where we're commanded to put on. And I'm going to use a couple examples today. But there were times when I would try to body surf these waves, and I felt like I was kind of forcibly putting on the wave. Because I'd try to get on, all of a sudden I'd just be enveloped by this wave and sand, sky, and drinking lots of seawater. Oof. But just getting utterly absorbed and swamped by these waves and the force of these waves. And as I've been pondering this passage here, and we're going to look at it here with these three things, identity, lifestyle, and motives. Now open your Bibles if you close them here to Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Colossae, this tiny little town, where a church was started just through Paul's preaching and teaching. Paul, by the time he writes this letter, he's in prison. He's under house arrest. And he writes this little bitty letter to this church, to Colossae, to the Colossians. And so he writes, it's amazing. And there was this heresy that was pouring into this church. And so Paul felt compelled and inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this little letter. This little letter, Colossians, is an amazing letter about the supremacy and majesty and authority of Jesus. It is unbelievable. And like most of Paul's letters, you have this unbelievable theology, and then you have this practical living. So again, when we look at one of our G's of gathering one body, the church, we're going to see numerous commands of what we're commanded to do. But at first, It starts with the gospel. I love it. The first thing is our identity. Right here in verse 12, what does Paul say? He says, therefore, as God's what? Chosen ones. Holy and dearly loved. God chooses us. As we've seen the past couple weeks, we are born dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses. And what that means is we'll physically die, physically, but Ross will be eternally separated from our Heavenly Father forever, unless there is forgiveness. And we can't earn that forgiveness. We can't work for that forgiveness. We can't be good enough for that forgiveness. It has got to be a gift. It is God's mercy being poured out upon us and his grace being given to us because of Jesus. And because of Jesus dying on the cross, being buried and rising from the dead, if we confess him as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. And in so doing... Because of Holy Spirit working in our lives, God chooses us. I can imagine most of us growing up when we were little, or if you are little and younger, there's times out in the playground in recess in school, at least for me it was, when you divide it up in teams. And those who are chosen last or not chosen to play, how do they feel? I can remember growing up playing baseball, hoping to be chosen for the all-star team and not being selected. And that rejection and the pain and the hurt. Yet for those who believe in Jesus, God has chosen you. 
You didn't deserve it nor earn it, but he chose you. And he not only chooses us to be his chosen ones, but he makes us holy. We are dearly loved. Now, many of us, I know I have thought of it in the past, being holy is just being, there's no sin in me or there's no sin. But holy means set apart. God chooses us. He makes us holy. He sets us apart for his purpose, for his glory, for who he is. He purifies us. And then we're dearly loved. How much did God love us? How much does he love us? He stretched out his arms on the cross and shed his blood for the whole world. That's how much he loves us. So the first thing we have to understand in gathering as a church is our identity. We're chosen, we're holy, we're dearly loved. And out of that flows the next two points. The next one, lifestyle. We talk a lot about this lifestyle, that lifestyle. Well, right here from verse 12b, all the way down through 16, we'll see what God is calling us, how we should live and love one another. What does Paul say right here? He says, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against one another. Now, right there is like seven sermons right there. What does Paul say? He says, put on compassion. What is compassion? Here's a quick, simple definition of passion. It's not going to be on the screen, so pay attention. God has given us two ears, one mouth. So what does that mean? Listen twice as much as you speak. This is what compassion means. It's being concerned for the welfare of others, especially in their suffering. That is compassion. Kindness is to be friendly, generous, and considerate. Humility, it's a modest and low view of yourself. Not a poor view, a low view. In other words, and I love the imagery, it's getting up under others and lifting them up for their vision and their well-being and their life. Gentleness, it's to be kind, tender, and mild-mannered. It's one of the fruits of the, one of the fruit of the spirit. Patience is to endure difficult circumstances long-suffering, tolerate, and accept delay. We're commanded to put on these things. Now, we can't do it with our own strength, only by abiding in Jesus, allowing him to overwhelm our hearts and our minds as we allow him to put these things on. If you try, you will fail. It's only by surrendering to him and letting him do it, letting these aspects of the fruit of the spirit to flow out of us. Then Paul says, what else does he say? He says, bearing with one another. How well do you tolerate others? Now, it's not tolerating their sin, because there's numerous commandments in Scripture that say, if you see a brother or sister in sin, you're to go to them privately and confront them on it. Most of us are horrible at doing that. We leave that for the pastor to be the heavy. But there's nowhere in Scripture says that says the pastor is the only one to do that. We as believers, when we see one another in sin, we're to call them out with humility, confronting them in love and walking with them, being committed, saying, hey, I see this attitude in you. I see these actions in you. So we don't tolerate sin, but we are to tolerate one another. 
their personalities, their likes, their dislikes? How well do we tolerate others? You see, for a lot of us, it's easy. Hey, me and Jesus, but his church, eh. Because, see, the church is dirty. Why? Because it's made of people. And we have our idiosyncrasies. We have our sins. We have our personalities. We have our thises and our thats. And one of the unfortunate results of COVID with all the technology is a lot of times, you know what? It's just easier to watch church online on my comfy couch in my PJs with coffee or hot chocolate. That might be easier to do, but is it, is it what we're called to do? Because you need the church and the church needs you. And maybe, yes, when we are sick and we can't attend, hey, we can participate online. But that's like eating a big bag of chips right before a Thanksgiving meal and you've ruined your meal. Am I making sense? So we're to tolerate one another. We're to bear with one another our immaturities. And there might be an area in Hutch's life where he's unbelievably mature, but I'm immature in. So he has to bear with me as I grow, but then vice versa. But in order to do that, we have to gather together in big groups, in small groups. There's no such thing as a lone Christian. If I cut my left hand off, this will rot away. And then my whole body will be affected. If we cut ourselves off from the body, the rest of the body is affected. And you will die. You'll shrivel up spiritually, emotionally, and you'll die. We need one another. And then Paul gives here probably the easiest command of all. Forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against one another. Who is great at forgiving others? Anybody? Oh, praise the Lord. None of you are liars in here. It's so hard to forgive when people sin against us. It's almost impossible. It is so hard when people do things against us and we have the right to want justice. That's part of being created in God's image. But we're commanded here. We're to forgive one another. Now, there is a huge difference between there's forgiveness, there's then reconciliation, which requires both parties to ask for forgiveness and to forgive. And sometimes that takes time. Even forgiving takes time sometimes. It's like an onion. Or if you're into Shrek, like Donkey says, hey, you know, cake. Cake has layers. Bill is laughing because he's seen Shrek. Sometimes we will forgive, and the very next week we're guarding the anger and bitterness, and we need to forgive again. But by trusting in Jesus, we can release it and release it. But with reconciliation, we might forgive that person. But if they don't ask for forgiveness, if they don't think they've done anything wrong, there'll never be reconciliation. Or maybe they've forgiven you, but you've kind of dug your heels in and you're not willing to humble yourself, clothe yourself in humility to ask for forgiveness. And then the last big step, which is important, is trust. It takes time to rebuild trust. We, we, through the power of Holy Spirit, can forgive everyone, and we should. But it doesn't mean that we're going to trust them, nor does it mean should we trust them. Because trust has to be earned and built back. 
Now, God's heart and God's desire is for there to be forgiveness, reconciliation, and trust. Here's the kicker. Regardless if there is reconciliation or trust, the command is to forgive one another. But here's the kicker. Right here at the end of verse 13, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. How much has Jesus forgiven you? What has Jesus done for your forgiveness? He shed his own blood. In that same way, we should and have to forgive. I've been a pastor since 1997. And I can tell you without fail, the biggest, some of you weren't even born in 1997. The biggest, greatest stronghold that I've experienced in my life with sheep, and I'm one of the sheep, is unforgiveness. The hardest thing that I've seen in humanity is forgiving those who've sinned against them. That's my experience. People will hurt us, offend us, and sin against us. But man, we need to live and abide in the very presence of Jesus so that we forgive them the way he has forgiven us. And when we do, I can tell you what I see in scripture and also personally. The peace of Jesus, the peace of Christ, the freedom that he gives to be able to bless and forgive. We walk in freedom. And any and every time the resentment and bitterness comes back, we just give it back to Jesus and we say, Jesus, in your name, I forgive so-and-so. In the same way you have forgiven me, I forgive. Because see, he's the avenger. He's the just one. And he will bring his justice at the end of the day. And we can trust him for it. Vengeance is his. Let him be in charge of that. Now this not even final aspect, but the second thing, our lifestyle. But our lifestyle, should we should clothe ourselves with humility and grace and kindness, patience, tolerance. We should forgive as we've been forgiven. But then Paul says, and I hope, it, Brett, could you bring me that white owl there, please? For those who don't know, I was an Anglican priest for about 20 years in Mexico. And uh, when I was hired here, I promised my supervisors that I would not bring any of the smells or bells into the building. But I didn't say anything about an owl. But you've seen this, many of you, when we do baptisms, sometimes here in the past, other times other places, those who are getting baptized will put on like a white owl, a white tunic. What does it symbolize? You know, it symbolizes being clothed in Jesus, being clothed in Christ, being pure, being holy, being sinless, having new life, new creation. And so, you know, we saw earlier, put on humility, kindness. But what does it say here? Above all, above all, put on what? Love. Now, it's not that feely, touchy, feely, lovey, lovey that we, that our culture talks about today. What does love mean? Talks about all the time. 
The greatest thing is love. The greatest love. Well, just as long as we love one another. You know, love is love and blah, blah, blah. What does that mean? Love. True love. Jesus' love. God's love. Agape love. is a 100% total commitment for the well-being of another. It's giving of oneself for the well-being of another. That's what we're to clothe ourselves in. Put on. All of us put on clothes every day. We're to put on love every day. Brett, you might help me, buddy. All right. Oh, man, my sleeve got off. All right, now I'm going to... No, you just put there on the bench. It's fine there. Thank you. Put on love. We can't do it without the presence, power of Holy Spirit in our lives. But ask Jesus to give you his eyes, his heart, to see people the way he does, to love them with his love. Finally, right here in this last section, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is still part of point number two. Amanda shared with us earlier, and guys, I'm so excited about this. Next year, one of our deep desires as a whole church, our new senior pastor, Jay Strathers, this is part of his vision, is that we as an entire church scattered all over Middle Tennessee would read the whole Bible in one year. Now, I know that for some of us, because we get way behind in the second week of January, then we feel like we're 15, 30 chapters behind, we can never catch up. Just skip ahead. God's not up there cracking his whip because you're behind. But I do want to say we're selling them, and it's not so we can earn money. It's our partnership with Lifeway, 15 bucks. Hey, Christmas is coming up. And it's in chronological order, and we're going to be preaching chronologically. Now, there's one Sunday which is just all of Deuteronomy, and there's like 35 chapters in Deuteronomy, or 34. It's going to be a doozy to preach it, but to read it for a week or two is going to be awesome. Let, it says here in Colossians, it says, let the peace of Christ. It also talks about let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We dwell in him by abiding in his word. We allow his word. We read the written word to encounter the living word. We read his word and consume it and allow the Holy Spirit to implant his word, which is living and active, to flow in and through us. I want to encourage all of us to spend time with him daily. There's some more fun stuff I was going to share, but I'll just stop for now. We're going to jump down to point number three. Before we do that, right here in verse 16, it talks about thankfulness and gratitude. There is power in thankfulness. There is power in gratitude. I love when we worship and I love when we sit in the songs. We don't sing to get through the song so then we can do get to the most important part of the service, which is the preaching. The whole worship service is important. And many times in our singing is full of gratitude and thankfulness, declaring who God is and also what he's done in our lives. Ask God to give you a heart of thankfulness and gratitude. A very practical thing before you go to bed. Share 10 things out loud. If you live by yourself, share it to yourself. 10 things that you're grateful for for that day. If you struggle with it, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That's what I do. Then all you have to think of seven. But there's power and thankfulness. But the last thing, and you guys know this verse here. 
is talked about a lot. The last one, the last aspect is our motive. Our motive is this, verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father, through him. I want to invite the worship team to come forward. I want to invite the deacons and those who are going to help serve the Lord's Supper to come forward. I want to invite everyone to please stand. And Chris, could you put that last verse on, verse 17? This is my challenge for us as we come into the Lord's Supper. A lot has been spoken today. And there's a lot to look at. But as we move into the Lord's Supper, we're getting ready to spend some time in confession, silent confession, just preparing our hearts as we remember what Jesus has done for us. We also celebrate his great sacrifice. So whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks.